And let's turn in our Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 12 this morning. And if you're uh, with us here today and you're without a Bible, there are going to be men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just flag them with your hand and, uh, and uh, they'll be glad to give you a Bible. We want everybody to not only hear the Word of God, but we want everybody to see it with their own eyes in, in God's book. And so uh, just flag them down and, and uh, get that from them. Sunday morning we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And you know it's kind of funny when you do that. It means you're going to hit everything. But one of the things that's interesting is that sometimes there's these blocks of Jesus' ministry or his teaching that are uh, very theological or that there would be a tendency to skip over them if, if you weren't just going straight uh, straight through. And sometimes the richest things are found in those particular places. I think maybe we come to one of those this morning. John chapter 12, verse 27. <clears throat> Jesus speaking, and he said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. And therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now, is, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of his crucifixion, I will draw all peoples to myself, and this he said, signifying by what death he would die. And the people answered him, We've heard from the law how that the Christ remains forever, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? They want to get into a theological discussion with him. And Jesus responds by saying, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, as always for your word. Thank you that it's going to outlive every circumstance in our lives is going to have the final say in every circumstance in our lives, is going to have the final say about our eternities, Lord, and we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that it's going to have the final say in all of human history, and thank you for the privilege of being able to build our daily lives upon your truth and to entrust our eternities to it also. Lord, this world we live in, you know all about it. You live inside of us. You inhabit all of time and space all at once. And you know how loud the volume of this world is right now. And we pray, Lord, that as we turn to your word, you would cause us to shut all of that off, return to the things that are eternal, the things that will outlive the present chapter, of human history return us to the simplicity of our relationship with you 
Return us, Lord, to the sureness and the beauty of your word. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just be mighty not only in our collective midst here this morning, but in each one of our hearts and our minds today. We pray, Lord, that you would speak something to us, each one of us who already knows you and loves you. We pray, Lord, for those men and women that stand before you now that are not yet saved, they've never trusted in Jesus for their salvation, that today something of your voice would be heard through the teaching and they would recognize the truth of it, Lord, and that today would be the day of their surrender and coming into your family. We entrust you, Lord, for all of these things, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. At this time in Jesus' life and ministry, he is now fully in the city of Jerusalem at the time of the Jewish feast of Passover. His death upon the cross is less than really a handful of, no more than a handful of days uh, away. A group of Greeks, a group of Gentiles, had attempted to approach Jesus and they communicated with Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus gave a response to them that on the surface almost looks like a rebuff to them or a rebuke to them, but it's nothing of the sort. Jesus spoke to those Greeks, and in speaking to those Greeks, he spoke to you and me and people all down through human history who would never have a chance to see Jesus face to face this side of glory. And he spoke to us on how it is that we might know Jesus truly and deeply and to understand Jesus. And Jesus declared that a person can only come to know and understand who and what he was and is in the light of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That that's the only means by which we can truly understand who he was and what he came to do. Second, I can only come to know and understand Jesus by making him my personal Savior. Third, I can only come to truly know and understand Jesus by following him into the same life of obedience with our Heavenly Father that he walked in with his Heavenly Father. And then fourth, I can only come to truly know and understand Jesus if I follow him into a life of ministry and service. And finally, fifth, I can only come to truly know Jesus deeply by following him and growing ever deeper in my personal relationship with him. That is a revelation from Jesus himself concerning one of the greatest themes or the greatest searches that any human being will ever engage in in all of their life. That is how to truly know, to truly understand this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And as we look at this passage and you think, well, my, following a revelation like that, how could Jesus top that revelation? How could he even equal a revelation like that? And yet he does. In verses 27 through 37, he gives us a revelation that is equal to the previous one by giving us a revelation concerning his perspective of the coming cross. 
Notice first of all in verse 27 that the coming cross troubled Jesus' soul. The prospect of the cross, the knowledge of his coming crucifixion, he says himself in the passage, troubled his soul. The word troubled means stirred. It means agitated. It speaks of a mighty disturbance. And here when it speaks of the soul, it's speaking of the seat of human affections. We would call it the emotions. It doesn't refer to Jesus' spirit because his spirit remains completely untroubled. It is dominant through all of it facing the cross, everything that would precede the cross. All of that is in his spirit is completely unaffected by all of it as is testified to his commitment to the cross at whatever the cost encapsulated in his statement there and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I came to this hour but though fully the son of God though fully God he was also fully man the Bible teaches and he felt every nail in his hands and feet on that day of his crucifixion just as you or I would. He felt every blow of the fist, every lash, every scourge, every stripe, every blasphemy, the crown of thorns, exactly as we would have if it had been done to us. Death by crucifixion was a monstrous, horrible death. And it was intended to be. It was a means of torture. Nobody desired to die on a cross. And yet he drank every drop from that terrible cup. All of his life he knew it was coming. Imagine being a teenager. Imagine being in your young 20s. Put yourself in Jesus' place. Reading Psalm 22. Reading Daniel chapter 9. Reading Isaiah chapter 53. And knowing that that is your future. That is one day going to happen to you. Emotionally, Jesus trembles at the thought of the coming cross. And the grammar is very interesting here because in the original language the word troubled is in the perfect tense. It speaks of a continuous state. This emotional agitation, this emotional troubling that marked Jesus' heart at this moment in time would continue to dominate his mind and his heart all the way up to the cross and through the cross until his death upon it. The Apostle Paul, who had no doubt witnessed many a crucifixion in his lifetime in that ancient Roman world, wrote with what I think is a sense of wonder and awe at Jesus' crucifixion when he declared of him and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Then he wrote it inspired by the Holy Spirit in a way that only one who had seen it could, even the death of the cross. This glimpse 
at Jesus' emotional turmoil. In addition to all of his physical suffering and ultimately his death upon the cross, I'll tell you, it causes me to appreciate him all the more, to love him all the more. His suffering, his death upon the cross for us was no small thing. Not even in the emotional realm. We give him praise this morning for his sacrifice. But notice what the cross accomplished. Notice in verse 28 that Jesus repeats the phrase, this hour. This hour speaks of his death upon the cross. And he declares that he had come into this world for this very purpose, for the very purpose of this hour. It is important to realize that Jesus' death upon the cross was no accident. Jesus didn't end up crucified as a result of some kind of wild series of events on the part of Jews and Gentiles that gradually spun out of control and resulted in the end of the day of Him being crucified. Jesus came into the world, He said, for the very purpose of ultimately one day hanging on that cross in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And so it raises the question, why? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? What in the world did it accomplish? And here we have none other than Jesus' answer to that question. And he speaks of five things. Number one, his death upon the cross glorified the Father. Verse 28. Somehow his death upon the cross glorified the name of the Father. Really, the nature of the Father. Remember when it speaks of somebody's name or it speaks of the name of God in the Bible, in the Jewish understanding, a name wasn't attached to a person in order to identify them uniquely in a sea of six billion people on the face of planet Earth. The name that a person had was represented their nature. When you thought of somebody's name, you didn't stop just by thinking of their name, but you went on to think about that person and the nature of that person. And Jesus died on the cross in order that it might glorify the name or the nature of God. And thus when Jesus speaks of His death upon the cross, glorifying the Father's name, it means that there's something about what Jesus accomplished on the cross that reveals something glorious about God to us. The cross glorifies the love of God for mankind. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrated His love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, not after He saved us and cleaned us up, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The word demonstrated in that particular verse in Romans chapter 5 is a word picture. It's intended to roll a picture up in our mind. Some of us think in pictures. 
And the imagery that it's intended to roll up in our mind is that word demonstrated means to show something in its best light. If you were shopping for a diamond to set in a diamond ring to give to your bride and you were to walk into a jewelry store somewhere in Modesto, you say, I'd like to see all of your loose diamonds. I, want to, I don't want to see it in a setting. I just want to see the diamonds. Pick one out and I'll design the ring myself. The jeweler would go back to the safe or wherever they keep the diamonds, bring the diamonds out, and you will never see a jeweler take those diamonds and just spill them out on a glass uh, countertop. Because there's no way to appreciate or fully appreciate those diamonds in that context. What the jeweler will do is take a black velvet cloth or a deep blue velvet cloth, carefully lay it on the counter, bring a light and beam it down on that uh, velvet cloth, and then he will spill the diamonds onto that background. And against the darkness of that background, the light upon it allows us to see the beauty of those diamonds in a way that we never otherwise would appreciate the beauty. And that's what Jesus' death upon the cross has done for us, to appreciate the beauty of God's love for us, in that it was demonstrated, it was shown in its best light against the darkest moment in human history when Jew and Gentile united together to crucify the Son of God. And yet God allowed it to happen because of the greatness of His love. Every time we think of the cross, it should remind us of the greatness of God's love for us. The cross glorifies the holiness and the righteousness of God. God faced a great problem in saving you and me. He faced a great dilemma, not just to his reputation by allowing people like you and me into his family. I'll just speak for me, me. I'll speak for you, you too. You're just like me, more or less. And the problem that God faced in his desire to save sinners is that the righteousness, the rightness, the right onness that is required by heaven is perfection. The old, an old Puritan put it this way. The righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires Him to require. Crystal clear. Translation. God cannot lower the standard for who is allowed into heaven that is perfect righteousness or He would not be a righteous God. And the problem that he has is that man is, all of us, less than perfect. We are unrighteous. We are all sinners. And thus we are disqualified from ever getting into heaven based upon our own righteousness, our own effort, 
our own works, our own merit. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. No matter what your mama says to you. No matter how many awards you won on the athletic field or in the classroom. There's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah wrote and said, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And yet as much as God loved man, longed to have a personal relationship with him, to one day bring him into the glory of heaven, he could not ignore the seriousness of our sin. He would be unrighteous if he did so. And what was his solution to the dilemma? There's only one solution. He was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary. Because it is there that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness or rightness or right onness to be put to our account giving us a righteousness that is satisfactory for heaven. And yet at the same time, in saving us in this way, he does not dismiss or ignore the seriousness of our sin. No one can look at the cross of Calvary. No one can look at Jesus hanging on that cross as we would read the Gospels in the Bible and ever come to the conclusion that in saving us God is soft related to sin or that he winks at sin or that he is casual about the seriousness of sin. It is only by providing mankind with salvation through the death of Jesus on the cross that allows God to remain in the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome both just and the justifier of sinful man the, it is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly righteous holy God to save ungodly sinners and still remain just in doing so. The cross of Jesus it glorifies the love of God. It glorifies the holiness of God. It glorifies the righteousness of God. Notice second, Jesus' death upon the cross judged the world. Verse 31. The phrase the world doesn't refer to the planet, it doesn't refer to the soil, but it refers to the worldly system that's all around us that lives in rebellion to God and to His Word. That's the world. And the cross judged the world collectively because in crucifying the perfect, sinless Son of God, the single greatest crime against God in human history, this world has revealed itself to be deserving of its coming judgment. 
This world is a wicked place and deserving of judgment. And there is evidence for that all around us. But what is the single greatest evidence of the wickedness of this world? It is that point in human history when Jew and Gentile united together to crucify heaven's Savior. Someone protests and said that was 2,000 years ago. That was then, this is now. (laughs) If you don't think that Jesus would be crucified or shot or assassinated or beheaded today in a shorter period than the three and a half years of his public ministry 2,000 years ago, you're not paying attention. to how this world is treating his followers all over this world and how strong spiritual Babylon and commercial Babylon is becoming by the day this moment in human history. But the cross doesn't just judge the world collectively. It judges every one of us individually when Jesus was brought into the temple in Jerusalem to be dedicated as an infant there was a man by the name of Simeon a great old and godly man who took Jesus into his hands and he began to prophesy concerning Jesus and he prophesied many things but one of the things that he prophesied is that through Jesus the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed, that Jesus would be the revealer of human hearts. And out of the mouth of that aged prophet of Simeon came one of the greatest truths ever spoken concerning Jesus, and that is he is the revealer of human hearts. That Jesus' life will expose a man's heart for what it is like nothing else will expose it for good or bad like nothing else will in the world. Because from the vantage point of heaven, what a person does with Jesus is the great test of a human heart. It is the single great revealer of whether one's heart is good or whether it is wicked. And the reason that it is the great test is because there is no good reason for rejecting him as Messiah or Savior or Lord. There are only evil reasons for doing so. Because we have so many freedoms in this country, and I'm thankful for them, including the freedom of religion, even freedom from religion, We have the freedom to accept Christ or to reject Christ. We have the freedom to worship and to praise Christ or the freedom to blaspheme Him. But because of that freedom, in his pride, man can begin to think that when he rejects Jesus, that that is some kind of a poor reflection upon Jesus. But it isn't. It is only a reflection of the darkness 
and the wickedness and the pride of that man's own heart. From the vantage point of heaven, what we think of Jesus doesn't amount to anything. Heaven is not a man-centered place. Heaven is a God-centered place. It's a place that is completely unaffected by the opinions of man. What we think of heaven, what we think of God, what we think of the Son of God here doesn't make any difference in terms of how those things are esteemed in heaven. It doesn't change anything in heaven, much less how Jesus is esteemed. No good heart can reject Jesus. Only a bad one can. And that's how God sees it. And how God sees it is all that matters. Heaven is very pleased with Jesus. It says something good about a person if we join heaven in its assessment of him. But it says something very bad about us if we refuse to make him our Savior and our Lord. What we do with Jesus judges us. It never judges Jesus. Jesus' life judges our life. Our life and our opinions never judge His. Number three in verse 31, on the cross, Jesus judged the devil. When Jesus declared that as a result of His death upon the cross, the ruler of this world would be cast down, He's speaking of the devil. And the devil is the ruler of this world. He is the God of this age, the Bible says. But Satan was defeated by Jesus on the cross. The Holy Spirit puts it this way in Colossians chapter 2. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he, Jesus, on the cross, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. When Jesus hung upon the cross, Satan and all of his demons, that whole realm of powers and principalities, they thought they had won a great victory. But it was through that cross, not only has Jesus provided a way for us to be saved, but he has also broken Satan's power over any life that becomes a Christian. And Satan is still very powerful in this world. He's still very, very active in this world. And that's going to continue until the day that he is judged and thrown into an eternal lake of fire, not as the ruler of that eternal lake of fire, but as a mere participant. But when we put our faith in Jesus' work upon the cross for our salvation, a great miracle occurs. The person... God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit comes into each one of our lives and we're no longer under the power or the authority of the devil. He is a defeated enemy. The Bible puts it this way in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is He, God, the Holy Spirit, who is in us as Christians than he that is in the world that is the devil. 1 John 4, 4, it's known as the Christian 4 by 4. So the devil ever 
harasses you over his power, authority in your life as a Christian, you just club him with that four by four a few times and he'll back off. Don't be afraid to do that as needed. (laughs) Now this is very, very good news, I think, for all of us. As Jesus speaks here and says, on the cross, he has broken the power of the devil. But I think it's especially good news for those of us who come to know the Lord coming out of a demonic background or coming out of a demonized background or coming out of a background where we've been heavily exposed to that particular realm, the power of the devil. I remember before I got saved, I was playing basketball in Napa Junior College and we'd go on these long road trips and they'd fly us all over. I'm just kidding. We took buses everywhere. (laughs) And at that time, the league that we were in had the longest distances of any league in California between the places that you played. I mean, by the time you drove in a bus from Napa, California to Feather River, you already felt like you played two basketball games before you unfolded yourself out of the school bus to then get out and to play. But we go to these places and we play a Friday night game and then we would play a, a Saturday uh, play a Saturday game. So there'd be the long bus ride and then there'd be the time that we'd be in the hotel or wherever they put us up and all. There's plenty of time to read. I'd read anything I could get my hands on. It had to be free. Somebody had a book at that particular time and And it was a copy of The Exorcist, and so I read it, and it was a very, very intense read. (laughs) We had a guy on our team, I mean, just a big, tough guy, built like a refrigerator. He read that book, and I don't think that he turned the light off at night for two months. That realm is real. But Jesus has broken Satan's power. And he's made that victory available to every single one of us. Praise the Lord. So when you turn to Jesus, Satan is forced to release his hold upon you. Number four, the cross allows Jesus to draw all people to himself. Verse 32. You know, one of the things we have to be careful of, today is so often I mean, we grow up in a nation in the United States of America where uh, the things of God, not as much as it's been so in the past, but we can be exposed to the gospel. We can be exposed to the word of God. We can be exposed to the, the message of the Bible and all. And when we hear about how the fact that God wants to save us, that God is willing to save anyone, pretty soon we just become dull to it. They weren't dull to it in the ancient world. When the Gentiles thought of the Jews and thought of the God of the Jews, they said, yes, the God of the Jews will save Jews, but what will will He have anything to do with a Gentile? And the Jews considered the Gentiles to be dogs in those days. And it wasn't all just the pride and the arrogance of Jews. It was that the Gentiles earned the designation by how low and animal-like life uh, they were living. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and declares that He is willing to save 
all peoples, to save Jew and Gentile alike, all nations, all tribes, all kindreds, all tongues. There were hearts that leapt for joy in the audience because they realized there's a way even for me to be saved with my background. And so Jesus is speaking about the fact that no matter what our past, no matter what our present, that we can come to Him and He's provided a way of salvation in that cross and that cross alone that allows all people to be saved. And Jesus declared that if any man will come unto Him, He will in no wise cast him out. There might be one or two of us in the room here this morning where you sit and look and say, I'm not taking my chances. I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I know what I've been. I know that what I've been and what I've done, I know the toll that it has taken on every relationship in my life that knows me. No one wants anything to do with me. And I can't trust or believe that God would have anything to do with someone like me. Jesus said, if you'll come to Him, there is no way that you will not be received, that you would be cast out. Too much. <laughs> Too much. And finally, number 5 in verses 35 and 36, the cross of Jesus, His crucifixion, allows each of us to become sons of the light, children of the light. It provides us with an opportunity to come out of darkness and to live a life in the light. All life lived apart from a relationship with God and through Jesus is a life of darkness because it means that I'm living a life that is dominated by the world, which is dark. It is dominated by the devil who is dark. It is dominated by my own rebellious self-will which is dark. And to fail to know and to obey Jesus is to go against all the stream of all of God's creation. It is to try and navigate in life against the entire physical realm around us. The entire spiritual realm that God has created. To live outside of a relationship with God, an obedient relationship with God is to fight tooth and nail by comparison every day of our life because we're going against everything that God has created and the way that He's created and the way that He has intended things to be. And the price that people pay on a daily basis for going against that without even realizing they are is terrible in their minds, in their emotions, in their body. And so it's, it, is, it is a terrible, difficult, dark way to live. God's intended Life to be lived a certain way. He's created us with that way in mind. And as we live in that way, we get into the flow of all of the heavens and the earth. And to fight against it is to fight 
all of the heavens and the earth, even to fight against God himself. Time and again, through the years, I have known people, not always, but usually young adults, who've been raised in the church, and they decide that there's something better out there than what they've been raised in. And I warn them. I don't know how you have listened to all of the sermons that you have listened to in all of your life. I don't know if you have listened to them and the Word of God as if they are only words on a page. But I warn you now, and I beg you now to understand that those are not just words on a page. That is reality. This is the way to live. And every one of us is intended to walk with God or else we will become a casualty in this life of a life to come. I like how Isaiah put it concerning God's ways. This is the way. Walk in it. It's that simple. God's way is the way to live. It's not just words on a page. And no one will ever prove God's wisdom to be untrue, even experientially. His way will be proven to be true and wise, whether it is in blessing or in judgment. And thus in verse 36, Jesus' exhortation to them and to us. Believe in the light that is Jesus. Believe in Jesus while you have the chance. Become sons of lights. Become his children by doing so. And then notice that great word, lest, in the passage. Lest darkness overtake you in this life and in the life to come. Jesus is calling on everyone in that hour and everyone in this hour in human history to believe in him and to be saved. How is a person saved? By coming to God and confessing my sin to him. God, I'm a sinner. And I believe that my sin has disqualified me for heaven. But I believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross. That he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe that He is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. So I turn from my own selfishness and my sin and my self-will this morning. I repent. I turn from it. And I turn to you today, God. And I put my trust in your Son. And I give you my life this morning for you to use now how you see fit for the rest of this life and all the life to come. And when a person does that, God Almighty and the personal Holy Spirit 
comes into a person's life and they're born again by the Holy Spirit. And you can do that this morning. You can obey Jesus' exhortation and encouragement in verse 36 this morning and be born again. He has done everything he can do in order for you to be saved. He has done everything short of touching your free will to choose him. But now you must do what you alone can do. And when you do it, you will discover that he has thrown open the doors of heaven to you and a personal relationship with him. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. You say, what's God's will for my life today? That you would not perish, among other things. First things first, though. He's not willing that you should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But that's the decision each of us must make personally related to him. The coming cross troubled Jesus' soul. Why would he submit to it? From his own lips, because it glorified the Father, because it judged and judges the world, because it judged the devil, because it allows Jesus to draw all people to himself, to save any and all sinners, and finally it allows each of us to become children of light. It offers each of us the privilege of coming out of darkness and living the rest of this life and all of the life to come in the perfect light of God's will and His ways. Let's pray together. The worship team would come up, that'd be great. If you sit here this morning and you have never made Jesus your Savior,